Hey everybody, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode number 143, July of 2021. Our guest this month is Michelle A. Miller. Michelle is a nonprofit consultant, an archaeologist, a mother, and the playwright of the second of our 2021 play reading series featuring roles for women over 50. Michelle's play is called Invisible Foe, and we will hear that play in a few seconds, but hey, stick around because immediately afterwards, we will feature an interview with Michelle herself. But for now, On Stage Offstage is proud to present Michelle A. Miller's play, Invisible Foe. The parts to be played are Carol, a woman in her 60s, played by Morris Stevens, and Jamie, originally written as flexible gender. She is between 35 to 50 and is played by Marissa Biondolillo. Invisible Foe takes place at the front door of a typical suburban home. The time is spring 2020. The COVID-19 pandemic is raging. Mom? Mom? Jamie takes out her cell phone and dials. Mom, I'm waiting outside. The front door. Door starts to open. Jamie. What are you doing here? You told me to be here at nine o'clock and it's nine. Oh, right. Sorry, I got distracted. Oh, of course. I'm cleaning out the closet. The closet? Do you really think that's what you should be doing now? I have to do this now. I don't have any choice. There are moths, Jamie. Moths in the closet. Eating holes in everything. But mom... I... Don't mom me. I've got to get all this stuff out of here and clean everything. Clothes, shoes, even all those silly bow ties he thought made them look distinctive. Then I have to vacuum all the shelves, the floor, even the ceiling. Mom, really? Now? Is that important? Just close the closet door for a while. There are so many more important things we have to deal with. Did you find those papers I asked you to look for? No. Mom! Jamie, I told you I've been cleaning the closet. There are literally dozens of moths flying around in there. Okay, Mom, I get it. That's gross. But the bank statements, insurance documents, the investment accounts, are you looking for those in the closet? Of course not, Jamie. Don't be ridiculous. Your father kept all his papers in his office, I told you. Neat labeled files in every drawer. Knowing him, they're organized alphabetically and by date and six other ways too. It should be a problem. It'll just take a little while to go through all 10 file cabinets to find what you want. Not for me. Mom, you need Meanwhile, to get the estate. Meanwhile, those little suckers are in the closet all day and night eating away at those beautiful clothes. There are holes in your dad's cashmere sweater, the blue crew neck that matched his eyes so nicely. And you should see the Swiss cheese they made of his brown cardigan, the baggy old one he loved so much. I thought you hated that sweater. You said it should be burnt. Well, not anymore. I'm not letting those little winged devils eat their way through all his things, even his nice wool suits. Do you know how much those cost? The Brioni and that bespoke one he had made in London? Your father lived in those suits. They're not not like he's the casual Friday sort of man. No, not your dad. No khakis and a sweater at work for him. True. He did believe in dressing the part. I don't think he even owned a pair of sweats, did he? Sweats. <laughs> not bloody likely. <laughs> if he did, those damn moths wouldn't bother eating them anyway. They seem to only go after the good stuff, the cashmere and mohair, even his best wool slippers. Now, don't you see why I have to get rid of them? 
why I need to take every single thing out of the closet. Wipe down every shelf, vacuum every surface. But it's 9 p.m. Surely that can wait. No waiting. You wait with these insidious bastards and they just get worse and worse. Multiply exponentially. <sighs> Didn't we learn the hard way about all that? One day it's five and nobody cares. And then the next day it's 25 and still nothing. But then after that, it's 600 something and then thousands and thousands. And by then it's too late. Mom, can't you just let it go for a while? No, I already made that mistake. That stubborn husband of mine with his, boy, it's nothing. Hey, it's just a cough. He always accused me of being a worry ward and <laughs> said I was making mountains out of molehills. Well, maybe he didn't worry enough. Well, you worry enough for all of us. Clearly that wasn't enough. Nobody listens to me. I told him to stop eating so much junk food and too much red meat. Do you know he had a burger every day for lunch? I don't think that was the issue, Mom. It's a global pandemic. Not the issue? That he was a good 30 pounds overweight? You don't read the papers? Age, weight, and smoking. Those are the risk factors. None of us are getting any younger, you know. I'm going to be 80 next I year. I know. That's why you need to be careful and not tire yourself out. You need to take care of yourself, too. I am taking care of myself. I'm getting rid of these noxious little critters that are taking over my house. I don't have any tolerance for these little beasts. I am not letting them take over here. They've done enough harm, you understand? We've had enough damage here. I get it, Mom. But you can't keep out every danger. Things happen. It's a dangerous world. <laughs> now who's crazy? We are being told that we can keep everything out. All we have to do is isolate ourselves at home. Isolate at home. Alone. Not with thousands of moths. I have to get them out. Don't you understand? I have to get rid of them. I understand, Mom. You are right. The moths are bad. But... You don't have to fight them all yourself. I don't. You want I should have the exterminator over? A complete stranger? You can't come in my house, but some total stranger? I don't know where he's been, do you? Fine, not a professional, but can't you get some sprays or traps or something? Sprays and traps? Like, with pesticides? Are you kidding? And waft toxic chemicals inside my house? I'm breathing in here all day, aren't I? Not supposed to leave at my age, even to get groceries. Trapped in this big wooden box we call home. I don't even open the door except for you. They leave the packages on the porch. So I don't want any damn killer chemicals floating around in the air. Invisible, deadly chemicals just suspended in the atmosphere, drifting into every nook and cranny until I inhale them? Deadly molecules filling my lungs? Don't you think we've had enough of that? It's not quite the same thing, Mom. To you, maybe it isn't. It is to me. Enough things in the air out there that could kill me. I don't need to spray anything toxic in here. Okay, I get it. No sprays. But you still don't have to go batshit crazy just because of a few bugs. A few bugs? Eating through your father's things? They must have been there God knows how long. Maggots eating through his clothes day after day. And we had no idea. 
Then next thing you know, you pick up a sweater and it's full of holes. See? Totally ruined. And that's it, isn't it? You realize there they are, completely taking over, and there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. Not a goddamn thing. Everything. R ruined. <laughs> um, it's okay. It's okay. It's really going to be okay. They're just clothes. How can you say that? Just clothes. It's going to be okay? Really? I wasn't even able to say goodbye, Jamie. We, we walked into the hospital together. He didn't even feel that sick, really. Just some trouble breathing and a little cough. And next thing you know, they're admitting him with pneumonia. And I never saw him again. That was it. He's in the hospital. He's on a ventilator. Three days later, he's dead and I wasn't allowed to visit. Wasn't able to say goodbye. I know. Mom, I know. It, it was too risky with your age and your history. Your father died completely alone in a hospital, surrounded by strangers. I know. He was here one day and then he was gone. Well, I'm going to make sure his clothes aren't eaten away in the dark. They don't just disappear too. Right, Mom. I understand. I love you, Mom. I guess I don't say it often enough, but you know I love you, right? I love you too, sweetie. Jamie looks at her phone screen, reading intently. Okay, mommy. So it says here that heat kills the moths and their eggs. So you need to launder all the clothes and dry at high heat. Anything too damaged, you can bag and bring here and I'll dispose of it. Bring me anything you wanna dry clean too. Meanwhile, vacuum up every surface and wipe with a wet rag to pick up any eggs. You got that, mom? Uh, then we can order these special plastic sweater bags, put everything inside. I'm ordering them now. How many do you think we'll need? <sighs> Don't worry. We're going to get those moth bastards, okay? I can't come in, but damn it, we are going to do this together. That was Invisible Foe by Michelle A. Miller. Carol was played by Maura Stevens, and Jamie was played by Marissa Biondolillo. Stage directions were read by Ithaca acting legend Milo Bohack. As always, we feature an interview with the playwright, and Michelle and I had a great talk about the play and the way it sums up a lot of the disturbing effects that this pandemic has had on so very many of us. Because yeah, the dynamics between the two characters, I mean, one is understandably in a panic, and I kept thinking about character outside and her her helplessness, not being able to come in, not being able to oversee what's going on, not being able to lend a hand with contact in proximity and being held at right. bay. And right. that is a sign of the times. You can't get close. You can't, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hugger kind of person, you know, it's, I'm in theater, so we hug a lot and, mm -hmm. but we don't do that anymore. 
and yeah. just the fact that she was kept outside the whole time without being able to come in yeah. and, and possibly think- yeah it's it's frustrating and we've all felt that with family members that you know that we don't live with you know extended family members where you especially on holidays or occasions where they are going through something uh where you want to comfort them that you can't be there and um you know my parents are older and I had to be more protective of them and I didn't see them for a year you know that's that's hard for me but also really hard for them yeah 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 it's it's, the normal family bonds are now stretched apart yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's a, it's a horrible thing that we're all going through here. It's the new normal, and the new normal is not acceptable in many cases, especially when it comes to being a family member. Yeah, and then, you know, you have the internal dynamics. Um, I know with my, like, because I have, so I, I'm both a mom and a daughter, yeah. so I can see it from both sides. And what's what's going through with my my children who are teenagers now and teens. I mean, the main thing about being a teen is is separating from your parents and spending more time with people of your own age and becoming independent. And for them, this has been particularly hard because they're stuck at home with mom and dad or just mom or in my case. Uh, And that's so hard because that's not what you need to be doing as a teen, you know, Uh, and then it's, you know, you get all that inter the conflict in the house and nowhere to go. Um, yeah, so all this stuff is swirling in my mind, you know, as I'm writing plays right now, um, coming out in different ways. Yeah, we've, we've, we've all got to think of a new form of reality where the freedom we had no longer exists. And how do we deal with that? And yeah. while, we're, while we're dealing with it, we have to write about it. Oh, well, I think writing about it is how, how we how we deal with it. For me, it's yeah. one of the ways I've been able to deal with things. Um, and also now, as things are starting to open up, I think you're seeing different reactions from different people. Right. Some who are like embracing that and are like throwing off the mask and with abandon doing everything. And, and some people who are kind of like, I feel like we're more like uh, like moles coming out into the light and, and not sure, you know, looking around like... Do I run back into my my little mm-hmm. tunnel? Um, yeah. And not even sure how to interact anymore. You know, all everything that we knew is is changed, right? So, yeah. we don't, you say you're a hugger, and I don't know if you feel comfortable hugging people anymore. Even even if they're you know you're in a room and everyone's vaccinated, and uh, supposedly it's okay, uh-huh. but, you know we're we're not sure how to how to be so that's going to take some time it's a whole it's a whole separate reality it just keeps changing it's never the same for long exactly and i am not comfortable with it even if i was in a room full of vaccinated people the reality of the pandemic which i mean up until now for most of us for many of us it's been a science fiction story we go to the movies and we see it and we walk out of the movie theater and we go "Ah, it's not real and we go on our merry way without a thought, but mm. it now it is. And you know, it's it's not like it's not like previous pandemics. It's it's not like AIDS or something like that where you needed intense physical contact. This is, you know, you're breathing next to somebody. Yeah. Or you're sweating next to somebody, or 
you know, it's suddenly you're aware of these these horrible little microbes that can zap you without mm-hmm. even knowing about it. And they're invisible. And you know, invisible, it's all that yes. it's all that invisibility, I think, where in the beginning we we at first we couldn't con- you know have a concept of how far our breath goes. Yeah. And and now I think we've almost become like a little force field around us. We're almost afraid of, of anything because we we're more aware of that space and that air. And where's that air been? And when you're inside versus outside and all that. Um, yeah. yeah. But the visibility of, of these little microbes is really scary. And I think when I was dealing with the moths, the thing is, it's not really the moths that, that you see. It's the little... Um, whatever larvae that you don't see beforehand that really yep. destroy your clothes. And it's, it's, it, that's where I got the metaphor for myself. I was like, I don't even see these things. I, I just see what the damage that they did afterwards. Yeah. When you so. can't, when you can't see the enemy, that's, uh, that's the really scary thing because you don't know how to defend yourself. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned yeah. that you were an archeologist and that absolutely mm-hmm fascinates me how how long did you do that when did you do that and what were you doing in turkey yeah well i was an archaeologist i still am it's like one of those things you never fully leave oh yeah yeah Uh, of course yeah (laughs) but um yeah i i studied i studied anthropology and archaeology was my specialty in in college and i sort of fell into that um, now looking back, I realize why, but you know, at the time I was like, oh, you know, this is interesting. I'll take this class and oh, I'll take another class in it. And I had started off as a drama major and I switched to anthropology really in my freshman year. Cause I was like, well, you know, this is fun. I'll keep doing this. And now looking back, I realized it allowed me to do several things that I wanted to do. And one was travel. So you travel to wherever you're doing your, your your field work. And I, you know, I enjoy traveling. I, I like going to other places. I love kind of looking into the past and I like making stories. And most people don't realize the story part and, and, you know, how it connects to me today that I, I'm still a story maker. I've always been a story maker. Um, but in archeology, span especially the archeology span that I did, which was prehistory, your taking a little bit of information, think about it. If you're looking at a culture, for me, it was 10,000 years ago. That was basically the period that I specialized in. But even if it was 500 years ago, you're getting a certain amount of evidence and then you're trying to figure out what was going on around that evidence. And that's story-making. Um, we don't put it that way when we're writing the articles, but right. it, it basically is. So that's, and I, you know, so I got into it through college. Um, I originally wanted to work in Peru, but at the time, or that's where the field work was I was gonna start with, because that was what my advisor in the anthropology department was working in. And the dig that we were going to go to was, um, basically there was a lot of unrest in the country at that time. And the people who were living there, the Peruvian people who were part of the excavation and was done with them, there was, Actually, I think somebody had looking at was murdered, and it was a, anyway. The the excavation was canceled. It was not the time to be going to Peru, right. unfortunately. And I looked around for where else I could. At you know, I was just a under, underclassman in college. And I was going to Stanford University. I should say that, 
And uh, there was a classics professor who um, actually husband and wife who were both classics professors and they had uh, field work in Greece and I ended up going there and I continued working there uh, through my and ended up going to graduate school and got my dissertation and I was in. So I started my dissertation is in Greece for all over, um, including the islands. But then mm-hmm. I started doing field work in Israel postgraduate. And Turkey was just one of those places that, you know, it's related to the world that I was in. I mean, in terms of the where the peoples were moving around that I was studying. Sure. And a really interesting place to go. So um when you say went, when you say field work, what mm-hmm. does that what does that entail? I mean, because all I know about archaeology is what I see from the movies. You know, so in my mind, you're on your knees with a little teeny brush, you know, scraping dust sometimes, off. Yeah. Sometimes you are. Yeah. Um, well, that's why I use the word field work rather than excavation, because it's not always an excavation. Uh, the work I was doing in Greece in the beginning was survey work, where okay. you're actually walking along the ground and you're looking for things that you could see on top of the ground. Because how do you know where to dig, right? You have to figure that out. Where are the sites? And unless there's, you know, larger remains on the ground, like, you know, uh, still some kind of, you know, foundations or something, then you look on the ground and you find materials that might come up, maybe when people are plowing or just, you know, they remove some kind of other feature, you know, they trees are removed and you see pottery if it's a pottery period or you see stone tools if it's period that doesn't have pottery. Um, and you can date those if you're people who, who have been studying this long enough. Um, you know, and it, it takes, in some ways I started doing survey work first and that was good training because you really have to have a good eye. You have to be able to walk along the ground at a reasonable rate and still notice things that are lying mm-hmm. on the ground that, that are human made. And you have to train your eye to be able to, in the very beginning, we used to, I remember it was like the first week we'd pick up stuff and we go to a professor, isn't this something? And you'd be like, yeah, it's a nice rock, you know, like <laughs> you have to train your eye. Um, and it takes a while. It does take a while. And then I was the person, you know, years later saying that to my students. Um, but yes, that's how I started. So that's why I used the word field work. But then, you know, I, I did do a lot of exca- excavation work and I um, co-directed feel, uh, an excavation in, in, in Israel for a number of years for a pottery Neolithic site called Shara Galan, hmm. uh, which means gate of the Galan. Um, it was a site in northern Israel, which is right on the right on the apex between um, Jordan, modern Israel, and um, modern Syria. It's a yeah, interesting interesting place. But yeah. in previous times, of course, that that had no meaning at all, obviously. And we're talking about this is ten thousand years ago. Yeah, uh, and it was a a small village uh, of the Neil. Lithic period, meaning, you know, new lithics, new, new right. stone tools, but it's known for pottery and it, known for farming. That's the first farming period. So, which is really important in what we call the Levant, because that's where much of this came was first, you know, the first yeah. Neolithic uh, farming. So anyway, yeah. that's, that's what I did, but I told stories about those people. So getting back to, you know, that sort of thing, when my specialty was um, ornamentation so jewelry, I guess we would say, right. and small kinds of art, like figurines and things like that. That's what I specialized in. And a lot of the time you have things like that that are figurative 
and you're trying to figure out why, you know, like what is the meaning behind them? And you can tell stories about, about that, but, you know, using the evidence, using where it was found, the context, yeah. using uh, evidence from ethnography, you know, what, what are people doing with similar stuff today or in recent times? But you still have to tell the story in, in some way to make it work for yeah. human beings. Well, it sounds like playwriting. You're looking at people around you and trying to figure out what makes them tick, why they do things, why they dress the way they do, why they present themselves, why they use this particular word instead of that particular word. And, you know, it's a, to make a really, you know, obviously lame analogy, we're all sitting here with our little brushes, put, you know, pulling the dust off people around us, trying to figure out what story they have that we need to tell. No, that's a really good analogy. And I think it's true. I mean, um, there's always so many, and, and you can use the analogy of layers too. There's so many layers and in a good play, yeah. you have more than one layer, right? You have the, you know, initial thing that might be happening, but then you have the underneath what's really going on and what the metaphors are. And it's the same thing, you know, when you're working on a site and you start digging it and you see like, oh, oh there's a row of rocks. Okay. Where's a row of rocks. Then the next thing it's, oh, it's a wall and then it's a floor. And then, you know, what's on the floor. And then you start realizing it's a room. Oh wait, there's, there's like burnt bone in that room and there's some cooking pots in that room oh it's a kitchen and oh this is where people cook this what did they eat and you know you start to make the story around the things that you're finding mm. yep it's it sounds fascinating um i'm sure there's a lot of boring sitting around waiting for things to happen time but i'm sure those moments of discovery are just irreplaceable you know, i know that you know other people uh, say, oh, it's a really boring, I never found a day on any excavation boring. Um, you're always, you know, people say, well, do you ever find anything? That That's like the question I get, I mean, do I, huh. ever, I, every day you find something. It might not be fascinating to the average person. If I picked up and put in my hand, this little bits of chipped stone, yeah. that might not be fascinating to you. But they, again, each one of those pieces tells a story, especially when put together. Right, so, to you it's evidence, to me it's a rock. Right. Right. And it, and, and it's everything. I found all of that fascinating, whether yeah. it was a little bit of bone or, you know, we found a whole figurine. Oh my God. You know, you had days like that, obviously yeah. in those are the days that, you know, get in the news and so on, but it's all putting it all together to me. That's really the more, the, the most interesting part. Yeah. It sounds wonderful. Actually. I'd like to touch on before we take off, uh, you wrote down that you write a lot about women's issues. Well, obviously, we're living in this sort of post Me Too time, but it's really, I think Me Too started started opening questions and opening uh, a way of thinking that still hasn't been, we haven't gotten there. Oh, totally. no, not yet, not even close. And, right. And I, so I think that this is a time where I'm trying to explore all of that. Um, why, why are there like such big disparities between how women and men are treated and why is it so hard to even now for someone um for a woman like and, and, and i sometimes think some of the plays that i write um the young women maybe oh well we're done with that we're past that and then they and i write these things and and then they come to me and they're like no no we're still we're still dealing with this stuff like yeah. things that happened to me in college um which i hate to say it was decades ago and I think, well, you know, women nowadays, maybe they're not dealing with that. And they're like, no, we're still dealing with that. And it, it makes me think, you know, how get, even just getting that out there and laying it on the table so we all can see it um, 
is sort of what I, I want to do. And, you know, and again, when I say women's issue, it ranges everything from, um, I've dealt with postpartum depression. I've dealt with, you know, uh, infertility and loss. That's like more recent stuff as a mother. And then I've dealt with, uh, domestic violence and, um, and I even dealt with the, the inequities that happen as girls become women. Yeah. So it's, it's the full range and you just find these things, you know, keep happening. So. Yeah. It's, I, I wrote a play a number of years ago, which, okay, first of all, you know, full disclosure, I'm an old white male. Right. So my perspective on this is <laughs> I'm hugely massively uninformed or I was, and I wrote a play that involved uh, abuse, aggravated abuse. And in the research that I did with friends who were counselors, friends who treated women who were, who had been assaulted, I got an education I could not possibly believe. And the number of women that were affected by this was unbelievably high. I was absolutely shocked. And in the time since then, I'm realizing no, I think they were actually underestimating. Yep. Yeah, well, that's absolutely one of the things that when I write these things, the people who come to me afterwards and say, this affected me, it's, and it's all walks of life. And, and I, you know, I wrote um, a play, which now is actually a film, um, Change of Plans, which deals with domestic violence. And the people who've, who've responded to it, and it's been men, too. It's not only been women, sure. um, but more prevalently women, uh, you know, from all walks of life and all races. And so I think that's important to think about. Right. You know, if you're, it doesn't matter. And I, I, I actually wrote it to be a wealthier person or upper middle class because sometimes we don't realize that. Um, it's kind of, it cuts across all these, these different, uh, yeah, it, it ignores all barriers or yeah. all uh, uh, all levels of society. And all societies. I mean, if you look yeah. around the world, too. So that's and, you know, in America, at least we have more resources. And if you look at other um, places in the world where women don't have the resources at all. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Michelle A. Miller, it's been wonderful speaking to you and highly interesting. Uh, thank you so much uh, for your play, Invisible Foe and stay safe and stay healthy. You too, and thanks for having me. Hey kids, thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at onoffstage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet, or know someone in the theater who would make really good chat, send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. On Stage, Off Stage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again for listening, and please, kids, 
Stay safe. Be careful for yourself and for those with whom we share this rock. And as always, happy theatering to all of you.